When wishes were horses and beggars could ride, in a stone castle by the sea there lived a rich land. What am I supposed to choose? There are so many. And so he left the trail, and he followed the sound of the music. I am the goat from the hills and the mountains. And when I have finished eating these herbs and these vegetables, then I shall eat you, too. Once upon a time, and welcome to the Story Story Podcast. I am your host, Simon Brooks, and I have some stories for you. This is a podcast to hear traditional stories told by some of the best storytellers in the world, and it will take you to long ago and far away, and bring you back safely. Although this is a family-friendly episode, within, we will be talking about and sharing stories of ghosts, graves and boggles. So today's theme is Be Brave. Be Brave. <laughs> Mo and I flew to the desert. Do you know an easy way to remember how to spell desert and dessert? With a dessert, you always want more. So that's why there's two S's in dessert. Anyway, Mo and I went to the desert. How many S's? That's right, just the one. All the way out in Utah. Neither of us had been out into the desert there before. I was a bit worried about the heat because Mo's not good when it gets too hot. But she did fine. We travelled all the way down close to the Arizona border. It's beautiful down there. We stayed in an old railway carriage, a caboose actually, and were very comfortable. But what we were there for was for some desert exploring. I had my backpack, put on my boots, grabbed water bottles and a packed lunch for both of us, and we headed out, paper maps in my hands. There isn't much phone service out there, so paper maps and a compass were really, definitely needed. About an hour and a half in, we found a slot canyon and headed inside. Slot canyons are these wonderful, twisty, windy pathways, usually in a crevice, like a crack, that runs down a cliff. They're very narrow and usually quite deep. The colours are amazing. Reds and oranges and browns. I'll send a couple of photos to Rachel Ann to put up on the website so you can see. We climbed through this one canyon, up over rocks that had fallen down into channels where the rain had washed the rock away, over bits of wood that had found themselves lodged in there. Mo found it a little easier than I did, except for where there were drops, and I had to help her down a little bit. She was really good about that. On and on we went, catching the light shining from above and reflecting the reds and oranges and browns at the bottom where we hiked. One turn after another, always going lower. In places, the rock walls got narrower. On and on we went. And then we came out into this open area, a clearing surrounded by these majestic cliffs. Now, who do you think we saw there? Well, I can say it wasn't Janice Del Negro because she is going to tell the first story of the day, and she's not in Utah. Are you ready? Janice is going to tell you a wonderful, chilly, family-friendly story, which I love, called Lucy and the Boggle. 
When wishes were horses and beggars could ride, in a stone castle by the sea there lived a rich laird. He was a good laird, as lairds go, with one great fault. He was superstitious. You know, he believed in things, like black cats being bad luck and four-leaf clovers being good. Now this laird had a soothsayer, a fortune-teller, who one day told the laird that if he could get a pair of trousers sewn by the light of the full moon in the graveyard of old St. Andrew's Church, the trousers would bring him good fortune. Now there were stories about St. Andrew's and everybody knew them, stories that said the graveyard was haunted by some fearsome thing. There were many brave, bold, and foolish men who'd gone in the night to find what was happening there, and what they found they'll never tell, for none of them were ever seen again. But that didn't stop the laird. Write a proclamation, he cried, a sack full of gold to the one who sows me those trues, and he let it be known that he expected those trousers by the following Saturday, the first night of the next full moon, or else he'd know the reason why. Now, as fortune would have it, and fortune always has her way, Lucy Dove heard about the laird and his need for lucky trousers. A seamstress by profession, Lucy could use that sack full of gold, having recently been sacked from the laird's own household. Oh, she still had a clever needle, but her sewing had slowed with age, and not even a soothsayer could see sacks of gold in her future. But when Lucy read the proclamation, she saw her way clear to a comfortable old age in a cottage of her own on her own piece of shore. For she had heard the stories, too. Well, I'm old enough to know a thing or two about churchyards and soothsayers and foolish lairds, too. If it's trousers sewn by the light of the moon he wants, it's trousers sewn by the light of the moon he'll get, and a dear sum he'll pay for them, moonluck and all. With just enough money not to freeze or go hungry, Lucy Dove waited for Saturday, and when Saturday came, she pinned and basted trousers cut to fit the laird. In that twilight space between sunset and moonrise, Lucy gathered cloth, needle, thread, and all into her apron, and she set out for old St. Andrews. The moon was rising full when Lucy stood before the church. Abandoned when the stories first began, the graveyard was dark and neglected. She pushed through the gate and found a place to sit, on a flat gravestone next to a marble tomb where the moon shone its brightest. Lucy shook out the basted cloth, threaded her needles, and began to sew, and sew, and sew, each stitch even and straight. And just when she was beginning to think that the stories she'd heard about the churchyard were just that, stories. A strange, unpleasant smell filled the air. It was the smell of dampness and decay. It was the smell of graves and corruption. It was the smell of death without the promise of eternity to redeem it. Lucy kept on sewing, and the smell grew stronger and stronger still, until suddenly the ground beneath her feet began to tremble, and the marble tomb beside her split in two. 
From beneath the earth there emerged a monstrous, misshapen head, its sunken eyes glowing with the devil's own fire. It spoke. Do you see this great head of mine? Long have I lacked blood and meat, so now it is just skin and bone, bone and marrow, skin and bone, bone and marrow. Lucy's throat was dry as dust, but she managed to reply pleasantly enough, I beg your pardon, did you say something? The monster strained and stretched, revealing a long, ropey neck. Do you see this great neck of mine? Long have I lacked blood and meat, so now it is just skin and bone, bone and marrow, skin and bone, bone and marrow. Skin and bone, bone and marrow. Oh, I know. I know. You're that wee bogle they tell all the stories about. The monster paused. He drew one long, twisted arm from beneath the earth and leaned his head upon it. Stories, he asked. About me? Tell me. What do they say? Do they speak of my fearsome visage? Of how I strike fear into the hearts of brave but foolish men? Oh, something like that, said Lucy. They tell them to children at bedtime to help them sleep, you know. Children, the monster snarled, bedtime stories. Old woman, look here. And from beneath the earth, the monster drew a second long, twisted arm that ended not in a long, twisted hand like the other, but in five sharp claws that slashed through the air and clutched for Lucy, but could not reach her. Old woman, do you see these great arms of mine? Long have I lacked blood and meat, so now they are just skin and bone, bone and marrow, skin and bone, bone and marrow. Oh, I see them, said Lucy. Really? It's a shame how some people exaggerate for the sake of a good story. And though her stitches got longer, they were still even and straight. The monster strained and stretched. He drew one great leg from beneath the earth and stamped it on the ground. He loomed over the madly sewing Lucy, grinning a terrible grin, showing rows of sharp, pointed teeth. He exhaled a malodorous cloud around Lucy Dove. Old woman, do you see this great leg of mine? Long have I... Oh, I see it, said Lucy. There's no need to be unpleasant. And she held her breath and stitched her last Stitch. Her limbs given youth by the promise of success, Lucy leapt to her feet and ran for the churchyard gate. The monster stared after her confounded, giving Lucy a few precious steps, and then, stop, old woman, stop! No one gets away from me, and the monster pulled his second leg from beneath the earth and gave chase after Lucy Dove. 
Down the hill they raced, the monster ever gaining. But though the thing roared after her to stop, Lucy never looked behind her, never. She clutched those lucky trousers to her chest, and she ran. She ran for the gate of the laird's castle by the sea. A wooden gate, a strong gate, a locked gate. A gate that was bolted shut against the night, and all the things that roam it. Lucy pounded on the gate. She pounded. She had no breath to call for help, and it was then, only then, she looked behind her and saw those five sharp claws come slashing through the air, reaching for her, reaching, and the castle gate opened just a crack, and Lucy slipped inside. The monster let loose a wail that shook the sky and in a starving rage struck the stone arch above the gate with those five sharp claws, leaving five deep grooves in the hard, cold stone. And that is how the laird got a pair of lucky trousers and how Lucy Dove gained a bag of gold. And if it was trousers full of moonluck that helped her beat a bogle in a race, who's to say yes or no? As for that fearsome creature, it was never seen again, although it left its mark for all to see. Five claw marks in hard stone, made as easily as the lines Lucy Dove made in the sand, in front of her own cottage, on her own piece of shore. Emerald Travel Services take you to far, far away and bring you back safely. One of the oldest and respected travel services, created in 1900 by Dorothy and the Wiz, you don't have to rely on tornadoes to take you places. With their Silver Shoes service, all you need to do is click your heels and you'll be transported to wherever you want to be, whether it's the Emerald City or Ibiza. If you prefer the slower form of transport, there's the Huff and Puff Hot Air Balloon Service for leisurely forms of travel. Balloons of all sizes for all folks can take you slowly through the heavens. Cruises to see the flying monkeys or crouching dragons, even a Nancy's birthplace, are easily booked. Larger balloons for longer trips are built-in accommodations, travel socks included. Call now, 888-WITCH-WITCH. We have a review. Woohoo! Hi, Rachel, Anne, Isabel, Simon and Mo says the review, you have given me so much joy in some very hard times as well as happier times. You encourage me to tell my stories and to do what I love. I'm an artist. I am so grateful to each of you for all you do and the joy with which you do it. Thank you. Liz Sinclair and Zinnia, the dingo dog in Maine. Then there are a bunch of emojis. Well, maybe one day Liz Sinclair and Zinnia and Mo and I could meet up. We're not that far away from each other. Woohoo! You already know the best way to support the podcast is by becoming a patron. If you're new to the show, then you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash story story podcast. Since you now know all there is to know, here is a short sound break of Mo snoring. And if you do become a sponsor patron, you get a fairy tale ability, like being able to stop your dog from snoring without getting up and out of bed. When we came around that final corner into the clearing, I could not believe my eyes. It was as if he was waiting for us. 
It was Coyote, sitting next to a fire. He beckoned us over. Mo ran over and skipped about, and Coyote patted her on the head and smiled. Sit down, sister, he said. I have some stories to tell you. He looked over at me and motioned for me to sit down too. The three of us sat around the fire as the afternoon air cooled, and Coyote told Mo and me tale after tale. In return, in the excitement, I told Coyote some of the British stories I know. And before we knew it, it was dark. I would like to say that Coyote showed us the way out of the canyon, but he didn't. Coyote being Coyote, let us find our own way back, which we did, but it was a lot harder in the evening than getting there. But the stars were beautiful when we came back out at the other end. Sometimes the greatest gifts come with a price, and this was one of those times. Our next guest is another colleague of mine, Kim Wycamp. If you want to hear her on my COVID show, Friday with Friends, Kim is a guest there. She's a fabulous singer, songwriter and storyteller. She also knits. And she is going to regale you with her telling of The Grave Dancer. Ivy left home. Her daddy did it. Unable to put up with her mama's drinking and not ready to care for a child, he left them both behind. And if he could do it, she could do it. Ivy walked for miles and as the sun rose up over the hills, she saw in the distance a small town. She set her sights on it. My new home, she thought. She found a grove of trees by a creek just on the edge of town and settled down for the day trying to work up a plan. She had nothing but her dress, shoes, and a hard piece of bread. After she ate, she cleaned up in the creek and carefully washed her dress, trying not to rub clean through the old material. The next morning, the sun came up warm and welcoming. Ivy dressed and headed to town and put her plan into motion. Going from door to door, Ivy would knock, telling the lady of the house that she could cook, clean, work a farm, can, care for babies. Most of the ladies took one look at Ivy and their heart broke. Her legs were covered with bruises, her hair knotted, her clothing worn through. Most of them wanted to help her, but they had no work. But when Ivy knocked on the fifth door, she got lucky. <laughs> a new baby had arrived and the wife was frazzled. She put a thin mattress on the back porch and told Ivy she could sleep there and work for food. No questions asked. Ivy thanked her profusely and went straight to work. Long days cooking and cleaning, warm food in her belly, cool, peaceful nights of sleep on the back porch. Ivy was in heaven. But the work did not last forever and after a few weeks, the woman told Ivy that she was feeling fine now and, and did not really have the means to keep her on. She told Ivy that if other ladies wanted a reference before hiring her, she would give her one. And with that, she handed Ivy a folded towel, bulging with food, and sent her on her way. It went on like this for over a year, Ivy relying on strangers, strangers relying on Ivy, until the next spring. A drought hit and things were hard. Water was scarce, people were getting mean, and the farmers were worried. Day after day, Ivy tried to find work, but there was none. And even if some of the folks had work, they couldn't afford to feed another mouth. Some had pity and sent her away with a small hunk of cheese or hard bread. But despite all of this, Ivy was still happy. A life with nothing was better than a life with her mama. But then the food ran out and the weather started to get hotter. Ivy began to cough and fear started to creep up her spine and she became desperate. At the far end of town was a fine house. 
and in that house was a large man, a greedy, gluttonous, loud mouth, given to drink in wild fits of rage. Everyone had told Ivy to stay away from the home of Rufus Barrett, and she did. Rumor had it that his wife had been putting away money so she could leave him, and he had gotten word of it and killed her. And though it couldn't be proved, that's what they said. They said that at his wife's funeral, he howled a whiskey howl and said that he was glad to be rid of the burden of that woman, and if that he was in better shape, he'd dance on her grave. Even though Rufus Barrett owned half the town, up till now, Ivy had been able to avoid him. But the rumbling of her stomach and her dry, parched lips made her think that, well, it couldn't be that bad. And with no wife, maybe he was in need of help. That evening, she walked through town and followed the long, curving road that led to the home of Rufus Barrett. She walked up to the imposing door and lifted the knocker, letting it fall against the carved wood. She could hear it echo through the house. A gravelly voice started yelling from within, and Ivy wanted to turn and run, but fear held her in place. The door swung open, and there he was, Rufus Barrett. A drink in one hand, a cane in the other, his jowls quivered when he spoke. "'What do you want, girl? Are you lost?' he said, looking over her shoulder. "'No, sir, I'm, I'm just looking for work. I, I cook clean sown garden, and all I ask is for a bed and—' "'Get off my property!' he shouted, cutting her off. "'I have servants I don't have a use for a beggar.' And he slammed the door. <sighs> Ivy let out a breath of air, fully relieved that the idea had not panned out. She turned and started down the path when she heard the click of the door as it opened again. "'Wait!' She turned and saw Rufus Barrett silhouetted in the door. Come back here, he said. Ivy walked back. You'll do anything for bed and food? Ivy bit her lip. Yes, sir. Any, any type of physical labor. I, I may be thin, but I am strong. He grabbed her roughly by the arm and led her into the house. Sit. I'll be back in a moment. He disappeared up the stairs and Ivy looked around. In all of her life, she had never seen such beautiful things. Red velvets, marble staircase, richly carved mahogany furniture, beautiful paintings and statues. By the stairs, propped against the wall, was a painting. Ivy stood and walked over to it. The woman in the picture had pale blue eyes that looked like a spring sky. Tendrils of blonde hair curled around her face. And even though she was beautiful, she looked sad. Ivy could not stop staring. She had never seen such a lovely woman. I told you to sit. Ivy jumped as Rufus Barrett awkwardly made his way down the steps with his cane. He reached the bottom of the steps, picked up the painting, and turned it around and leaned it against the stairs. Hmm, trash, he said, spitting on the back of the canvas. Ivy noticed that he had put his hat on. She also noticed the nauseating stench of heavy alcohol. Come with me, he said. Ivy followed him down a long path towards town. Because of his limp, it took a while, but soon they had made a left turn onto Breckridge Road. Ivy stayed behind, not daring to talk. Rufus led the way, muttering under his breath. After about eight minutes, he stopped. Here we are, he said. Ivy looked up. It was the cemetery. Rufus walked in with Ivy following down the winding paths and then onto the grass, and then he stopped. Here she is, 
he said, spitting on the ground. Didn't appreciate a thing I gave her. He looked at Ivy with the same look her mama used to get when she talked about Ivy's daddy. And she cringed, expecting a blow, but it didn't come. Instead, he pushed her onto the grave. I want you to dance. What? I want you to dance on my wife's grave each night from nine till midnight. When the bell tower rings 12, come back to the house. There are servants' quarters in the back, and you'll have a bed. But don't you try and cheat me, you little brat. I'll be checking on you, and if you cheat me, you'll get a beating and be sent on your way. With that, he turned and walked away. And in that exact moment, the bow tower struck nine tolls. Rufus Barrett turned and looked at her, his face red and veined with rage. Dance! Ivy jumped and then began to shuffle her feet. The earth beneath her had just begun to sprout new grass, and it whispered across the bottom of her feet as they moved. Rufus grunted his approval, turned, and limped out of the graveyard. And Ivy danced. The cold chill of night began to set in. When the clock struck ten, Ivy's legs were starting to feel weak. She had wanted to take a break, but was sure that Rufus Barrett was hidden behind a tomb somewhere watching her. And by the time the clock struck eleven, her shoes had become damp with moon dew, and the only sound was the pat, pat, pat of her feet on the grave and the lone hoo, hoo, hoo of the night owl. When the clock struck midnight, Ivy collapsed onto the grave and wept. Every part of her body ached. Her feet were blistered and she actually wished she was back home sleeping on the hard wooden floor. Her eyes closed and dreams came. And there on the grave she lay until the first wink of morning. She dragged herself back to Rufus Barrett's home and found the servants' quarters. Two women there gave her a warm bed, bread, milk, and a good scrubbing. She laid on a small cot, her cheek relishing the rough threads of the sheet, and she slept for hours. And so it was that each night for three hours, Ivy would dance on the grave of poor Mrs. Barrett. Some nights she could see Rufus Baird watching her from the street outside the cemetery. And other nights she knew that she was very, very alone. As the days passed, Ivy became very strong. She enjoyed her time during the day with the servants, and they started to call her the little grave dancer. She ate well, wandered through the gardens and the woods, and very rarely caught sight of Rufus Baird, and when she did, she hid. She liked helping with the cooking and scrubbing and singing songs with the servants. One day during lunch, she was scrubbing laundry and humming when the old woman Aggie came and pulled her away, one of the servants. She led her to the back of the grounds and they went under the shade of an old pin oak tree. Girl, I know that rotten Rufus. I know what he have you doing. You best be careful because you be messing with serious stuff in that graveyard. Sweet Mrs. Barrett, she loved us. I miss her each day. Here, take this for when you go dancing. It'll keep you safe and bring you luck. The old woman pressed something cold into Ivy's hand. It was no bigger than a dime, dull brass worn down over time. It was a small circle, and in the middle was cut an arm with a a clenched tight fist. Ivy fingered it and, and looked at the woman and thanked her, and then ran off, dropping it into her dress pocket. That night she walked to the grave. Her foot landed on Mrs. Barrett's plot, 
with the last toll of the nine o'clock bell, and she began to dance. She was no longer sad to do so. She had decided that if she had to dance on this grave, she would do it as an honor. And so each night she closed her eyes and and she thought of the lovely Mrs. Barrett and all of the good things she had heard about her. She danced with joy, spinning and twirling her feet, moving delicately now over the settled grave. But tonight was different. As Ivy sang and danced, she started to hear a soft humming. It sounded like the wings of a thousand hummingbirds flapping out a melody. She opened her eyes and realized she was not alone. There, dancing on the grave with her, was Mrs. Barrett. Her pale, translucent hair hung down her back, her body nothing more than a long, graceful swirl of fog and pale mist. Her eyes were blue jewels, and she had the look of peace upon her. She reached out and took Ivy's trembling hand and mouthed the words, Dance. Lizzie realized she had stopped moving, and she looked down at her feet and willed them to move. The beautiful humming began again, and that night Ivy did not dance alone. At midnight, the bell tolled, and on the final stroke, the beautiful humming song stopped, and with fluid movement, Mrs. Barrett returned to the earth like summer rain into spring ground. Ivy walked home that night determined not to tell anyone. Who would believe her? She would lose her job. She would miss miss the ladies she worked with each day. She would miss her bed. The night became chilly, so she slipped her hands into her pockets, her fingers wrapping around the old talisman that Aggie had given her. For the next few days, Mrs. Barrett danced with Ivy. Each night, when Ivy heard the humming, she would open her eyes and smile, and Mrs. Barrett would smile back, and they would dance hand in hand until midnight. But then, on Sunday, things changed. Mrs. Barrett came, but this time she did not take Ivy's hand. This time, She did not look peaceful. This time she left the grave and floated up and out of the graveyard. Ivy had to run to catch up, and she followed the dead woman until they came to the Barrett property. The willowy figure swooped down over the back of the hill behind the house and disappeared behind the huge pin oak where Aggie had given her the luck charm. Ivy was out of breath when she caught up, and as she walked behind the tree, she saw Mrs. Barrett hovering steadily a serious look upon her face. Ivy could hear her own heart whooshing in her ears as she watched Mrs. Barrett reach deep into the earth. Then with her hand closed, she rose back up and moved towards Ivy. She reached out and took Ivy's hand and placed within it a gold coin. On the front was Lady Liberty, and on the back was an eagle. Ivy had never seen a coin like this. Mrs. Bear had beckoned her over to the spot where she had pulled out the coin. She took her free hand and pushed it towards the dirt and had Ivy follow along with her. And then Ivy understood. Over the next few days, Ivy tried to plan how she could dig up the money. It would be hard. She worked all day, danced all night, and then was expected to be in by uh, 1230, tucked into her bed. Where would she even get the tools? How deep was the money in the ground? What if Rufus Barrett caught her? All of these thoughts wound her stomach tight until one night things changed. She had been dancing for half an hour when she heard the humming. She opened her eyes and saw Mrs. Barrett, who looked very sad. 
Ivy knew why. You don't understand, she said. I appreciate your kindness, and I know what you're trying to do to help me, but I don't have the time or the tools to go digging, and what if I get caught? I'm scared, and I don't want to get in trouble. I like my bed, and I like old Aggie, and I'm scared of Rufus Barrett. Mrs. Barrett nodded. Her head dropped for a moment, and then she left the grave. Ivy took chase and followed her all the way to the house, but this time Mrs. Barrett did not go to the old pin oak tree. Instead, she floated right up the front stairs through the front door. Ivy ran up and hid under a window by a holly bush. Its leaves were poking her through her dress, but she didn't move, and she didn't make a sound. She watched as Mrs. Barrett picked up her turned portrait that was still propped against the steps. And with supernatural force, she threw it against the wall. The wood splintered and the canvas ripped. Rufus appeared at the top of the steps, bellowing and drunk. What is all the racket? You know not to come into the house at night. You're to stay in your quarters. No sooner did his foot take its second step onto the stairs than Rufus Barrett saw his dead wife at the bottom. His mouth contorted into a silent scream. His hand clutched his chest. His foot in mid-step missed the next stair, and he fell hard down the marble case. Ivy watched her heart pounding as Mrs. Barrett hovered above his still and broken body. And then she heard the sound of humming, and Mrs. Barrett looked out the window at Ivy and disappeared. The train settled to a stop. Ivy straightened her silk hat as she stepped off the train. It had been 15 years since she had been in this little town. She set her purse on the crook of her arm and walked, ignoring the looks from men as she made her way through the streets. She had a leisurely supper and then checked into her hotel. Her luggage had arrived and she indulged in a hot bath and then put her clothing away. At around 8.30, she slipped into a simple black dress and headed out into a thick night. She walked to the cemetery and found the grave that she knew so well. Reaching into her pocket, she pulled out the talisman that she had gotten from Aggie so long ago. A luck charm. I don't need this anymore, she whispered. And she pushed it into the yielding earth by Mrs. Barrett's tombstone. She stood and turned to walk away and then stopped. The bell started to toll. Ivy stepped onto the grave, and on the last stroke, Ivy's tiny feet began to dance. She closed her eyes and smiled and twirled and spun. The air began to fill with the faint sound of humming She opened her eyes, expecting to see the pale ghost of Mrs. Barrett before her, but it was not there. The humming grew louder and louder, and Ivy began to turn around to see where the sound was coming from, and off to her left, she saw Mrs. Barrett. She walked towards the smiling dead woman and then turned to read the large marble tombstone that marked the grave where the woman stood. Etched into the cold stone was the name of Rufus Barrett. The humming became louder until it filled the whole graveyard with an eerie melody, and Mrs. Barrett danced like she had never danced before.
I hope you enjoyed today's stories. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Story Story podcast. Show the love, find their work online, and tell them that you heard them on this podcast. Find opportunities to connect with the magic of live storytelling, whether it's in person or virtual. There are wonderful storytellers out there. Go and find your favorite tellers from Story Story Podcast and discover what they can bring to your home. Did you know that you can connect with the podcast and see the fairy tale sponsor ads on Facebook or Instagram at Story Story Podcast? Or you can connect with me at Simon M. Brooks on Instagram. Check out In the Woods with Mo. And also on Facebook and my website at Simon Brooks Storyteller. Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me. The Friday with Friends are all on my Facebook page under videos. And please do let us know a favourite story that you have heard or favourite stories of your childhood. Who knows, maybe you will hear them here soon. The inspiration for the fairy tale sponsor came from listening to Megan Wells tell a 10-minute version of The Wizard of Oz. That's right, 10-minute version of The Wizard of Oz, which blew me away. And the inspiration for the true fairy tale came from a visit to Zion National Park in Utah and rappelling, or abseiling, down into a slot canyon in September of 2022. Music is by Poddington Bear. This podcast is made possible by patrons like you. Consider becoming a patron or joining the mailing list to get podcast goodies or writing a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps other story lovers find and enjoy the show. You can do that. Go on. You'll hear more stories next week. But until then, live happily ever after. Mary Kate opened up the door and there on the doorstep, wrapped in his own blanket, was her baby. And to this day, Anansi spins webs so that he can catch the flea, the fly, and the moth that got away. If you go down to the lake on a clear day, when the water lies as calm as a sheet of glass, you can still see the rooftops of the castle glittering in the sunlight. And if you listen really closely, you can even hear the festive music from the royal court. Find opportunities to go and find your favorite tellers and my website at the inspiration for the true no. My gosh, I'm making lots of mistakes today. The music is by Poddington Bear, which is very much alive and well. No, I don't need to do that bit. And I wonder if I can make any more mistakes in this show.